The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Lord, before we heard your word, we, we sang of you as a great king, a king who is gracious, a king who is a, a ruler of love. That's a great thing. To be a people subject to a ruler who is full of glory, who is full of greatness, who is full of grace and mercy and steadfast, faithful love. What a good thing. And to see that and to contemplate that, to then declare it and to praise it, it's what we are made for, it's what resonates in our hearts to say amen. That's who you are, how fortunate we are to know this one, you. So you give us this, this great gift of yourself and of an awareness of yourself and, and of a call to praise you for our joy, for your glory, for your honor, indeed, but for our joy. And we say thank you for putting us in that spot. You could be any other kind of ruler, but you're this kind. You lead us in these ways. You call us to this kind of response. Our hearts are full then. Thank you. Help us to consider these things in the passage before us this morning, to consider how to walk now looking forward, to walk now in joy, considering what is now, who, who you are now, and, and what will be, what will be. Put these things in front of us, Lord, open our eyes, help us to see them. There's, there's so much here, as is so often the case, there's so much here that is very familiar to us, concepts, doctrine, very familiar to us, but familiarity doesn't really do anything for us if we don't trust it, believe it, rest in it. And so, Spirit of God, I would ask you now to, in, in ways maybe unique to individuals, but I'll say in common for us all, to, in this room, upon us, rest sweetly and, and strongly to press into us this goodness here in this passage, familiar as it is, for our joy, for the honor of Jesus, for the growth of his church. Please do that now. Make the word clear. Build us up. Thank you. We trust ourselves and this time to you saying thank you. Amen. Amen. Christian author C.S. Lewis once wrote about a habit of God's that at first he found odd, even improper and off-putting. This habit, I'm calling it a habit, I'm not sure that was the language he used, but this, this habit was particularly evident in the Psalms. It's the habit of God calling for, commanding, enticing people to praise him. It's all over the Bible. It's everywhere in the Bible, and it's very pronounced in the Psalms, of course. And at first, that struck Lewis as being, frankly, self-centered, 
presenting a God who was pretty egotistical and maybe even a bit needy. And Lewis didn't like that until he realized something, or we would say until God showed him something, but he realized that as he thought about it and then observed the world around him, and he noticed that human nature, there's something in all human nature, how we're made, what we are. And he noticed this, that as people, we always feel compelled. We, we are driven to praise something that we find praiseworthy. We're drawn to lift it up, to extol it, to say something nice about it, to, to give it some acclaim. And if you think about this, look and listen for it in the coming week, you'll see it everywhere. It, it's everywhere in life. I'm not talking about religious life. I'm talking about life. Did you see the game-winning shot yesterday? The Celtics played Golden State. Curry had 49 and Kyrie had 37. It was awesome. Anybody had that conversation yet? We talk like that. The details, and it was awesome. The, yesterday's sunset was remarkable. You walk into someone's house. Oh, your, I love your kitchen. The backsplash is beautiful. So cool. We, all the time, all the time. All the time. It just comes out of us. Comes out of us. That's how we're made. There's something there in us. Lewis observed that that's in us. When we naturally find something cool or praiseworthy or amazing, it just comes out because, as he kind of reasoned through, the praising itself, and you notice this, it's the furthering of our own enjoyment of it. You might even say it's like the, like the last step or the final step in it, such that if you're forbidden ever to talk about yesterday's Celtics game, you kind of feel, like, restrained. I want to talk about that. It, it's natural. Once it come out of us, we're delighting again in the wonder of yesterday's sunset. As I recall it to mind and talk to you about it, and then you give me feedback. You saw it too, and it was wonderful. We're bringing it up, we're talking it through and enjoying it again, being pleased by it again. That kind of observation then makes praise a central piece of human life, really, a really important topic, not a religious topic, a human topic. There's something about us, we're made for that, we're made to do that and it's closely connected to our own delight, our own joy. We're made to praise specifically something that is some, some ground, some, some very praiseworthy thing, some unfailingly satisfying and fulfilling object. We're drawn to that. We want to do that. It's a very important subject for us. And so then, for God to call for or to command or to entice people to praise him is not egotistical, not neediness. He, we're the needy ones. We're the needy ones. We need to praise something truly praiseworthy so as to enhance our joy, so as to enhance our soul's delight. Not just in sunsets and sports, but in something truly truly worshipful, worthy of worship, praiseworthy, God himself. 
Our hearts are bigger than the stuff here in the world. Not that there's anything wrong with praising stuff here in the world, but, but we're bigger, bigger than this. We're made for that. It is good to praise God. And that brings us to Psalm 92 and praise. The past couple of weeks we've considered Psalm 90 and 91, getting up to this. We've seen this idea of God as dwelling place, as a refuge for his people. Coming out of that place of darkness that was in Psalm 89 and repeated then in Psalm 90, place of darkness summarized by the question, where are you, God, and are you going to come back? Will you return to us? It's answered in 90, and we saw last week in 91, yes, I'm here and I'm coming back. I, I am your shelter. I'm your refuge. I'm your dwelling place, your protector against evil. And in particular, last week, as we saw, protector against spiritual forces of evil. It's who he is for us, and it's great confidence given to his people. And so then we come to Psalm 92, continuing on with response to that. Praise. And even more is here than just praise. There's also another piece of this psalm, a reality wrestled with, because praise, but then you're a shelter, you're a protector from evil, but evil still is. How are we going to deal with, with evil, with evildoers as they're in this psalm? Praise, but, but what about, how do we praise in this context? Well, he's going he's to deal with that. He's going to talk about praise, and the answer comes down largely to what you see. What do you see? So three observations here from this psalm related to praise and what we see. Here's the first. See the great works of the Lord and walk in praising worship. See the great works of the Lord and walk life praising. Walk life in praising worship. Verses 1 to 4 are the lead section of the psalm. And they contain the main goal, the main takeaway. The rest of the psalm probes this and reaffirms it. All kind of supports it. But initially we just get this. Here's what's right and good. Verse 1 Give, to give thanks to the Lord, that is, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Two verbal ideas there, give thanks and sing praises. They both have a clear bent towards, towards something outward, something, something expressed public, rather than just private and mental, especially when you see the contrast we'll come to in verse 4. They have a bent here, and that fits well with verse 2's declare and verse 3's instrumentation. There's something here that's outward and expressed, singing or saying in, in some way, displaying such that others see it. It's, it's out, not just in here. So you can imagine a public worship service maybe or, or the singing of a song or you know, a small group praying. It's an expression that would involve others at, at least as witnesses of it, maybe participants too, but Ultimately, the main audience, of course, is God himself. It says, to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. He's talking to God there already in, in the psalm. 
in the verse itself, he's talking to God. He is first and foremost Godward. Sing praises to your name. Godward thanksgiving and Godward singing of praise and a Godward declaring your steadfast love. He's talking to God here, even if in some ways it, it engages other people. So that's how praise and worship is, naturally, if you think about it. You just take this church service. A little bit ago, we were all singing, and we're trying to have songs that are directed towards God. You know, people write songs, and we, we sing them, and they are often Godward in their very language, but we're all doing it together, and there is a way we are all involved together in it, and as we hear one another, it's encouraging to us. So there's an audience element but it's Godward corporately same with a small group or a conversation with a friend a little prayer group you're not singing to each other you're not praying to each other we're praying Godward declaring his praises singing praise to his name but there's a group aspect to it Godward ultimately though we give thanks, we sing praise to him. And then you look at the end of verse 2, in the morning and by night, it becomes obvious there that he means always, not just on Sunday mornings or not just in a meeting. It's good and right to visibly, expressively, audibly, continually worship, to praise him. I'm emphasizing visibly, audibly, expressively. And I don't want to lean too much on that, but I do want to point out something there that I think, especially when you see where this comes from, in a minute we're going to get to verse 4. I think there's something here that's additional in the outward aspect. And maybe it's kind of what you notice if you think about why something I'm thinking about comes out my lips. Something you notice that's additional when you're listening on your headphones to the worship song and you start to hum along and then start to sing. Something additional of your heart that gets engaged with the, with the expression of it, not just the contemplation. So I don't want to push too hard on that and say this is a required, this is some sort of mandate, but I do want to say there's something of a progression here. Something outward, something declaring, something singing. And there's something that's good for us in that. Our hearts engage in a different way as we express. Express what? Verse 2, your steadfast love, your faithfulness. These two words here are very often linked words throughout the scripture. Very often linked. They overlap quite a bit. The faithfulness of God, the constancy of God, the reliability of him. He's not fickle, he's not arbitrary, but in fact steadfast and dependable. This is the Lord Yahweh. You see his name there in all capital letters a couple times in this first section. This is, this is the God who is, the one who is almighty, who reigns over all things, and who can be thoroughly and completely counted on. Counted on to be 
a God of steadfast love. Counted on. He's, he's faithful to his people and, and he deals with his people constantly and consistently with, with a firm grip, always, utterly, dependably in loving, kind, mercy, and grace. Not, it's not, not variable. Sometimes he is, but sometimes he isn't like, like people. He can be completely counted on to deal with us in this solid and sure way. That's what we out loud express, and, and there's something in the out loud expressing of it which it kind of enhances our delight, our, our hearing of it, our, our ingraining of it, our, our believing of it, and our, 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 oh, our sweet enjoyment of it. That's who he is. Night and day constantly, coming off of our lips, that's who he is. Here is the one who is un unfailingly grand and good. We, we never will find ourselves praising him and then let down. This is God. And wh where do we get this from? How do we come to see him like this? Well, verse 4, from his works. Here's the progression. You move, move one step back from the, the outward declaration and you get... Why, why am I outwardly giving thanks and singing praises and declaring for, verse 4, because you, O Lord, have made me glad by your works, at seeing the works of your hands, I sing for joy. That verse is about what's first in here. Why did I do this? For something was in here first. You made me glad. So I declared. You made me glad by your works. It's not praise and give thanks and worship, period, but rather praise, give thanks, worship because you first seen his praiseworthy work and in that seen his praiseworthy self. has an internal effect on us first. You, Lord, have made me glad. So that's where the psalmist is. First four verses. Glad in heart, having a joy in heart that then comes out, leads to an outward expression in some way or another. And it comes from seeing God's work and seeing it as wonderful and good and great. That's how he is. That's meant for us too. That's where it all begins. It is good. This is good. Right, appropriate given who God is. Yes, yeah, yes, absolutely. We've got to realize something here though. This is actually good for us. So sing more praise songs. Not quite. What's the progression there? I sing, and 
Yes, I don't want to not do that, but that's not the first piece in the progression. The first piece in the progression is made glad by seeing his works. Made glad, made joyful in here by seeing him in his works. And then, then it comes out. You can't just skip to the end and say, express more. Declare more. We first need to, to see more. If you're going to talk about how great the game was yesterday, you have to have known the Celtics played Golden State. You have to have seen that as remarkable. You have to have seen the sunset, been in the kitchen and seen the, this first. Before the praise comes out, you can't just skip to the praise. And frankly, that's a ton of what's wrong with church worship. Isn't it? We, we, we come into a room, Christian or not, we come into a room and someone says, Let's praise the Lord, and you're kind of thinking, I'm not even thinking about God right now. But okay, worthy are you, wonderful are you, O God, I guess. The the disconnect in, in our heads makes that worship completely unfulfilling, completely unjoyful, right? Doesn't it? Aren't, aren't we kind of singing along or praying along, just mouthing the words? You're not, you're not delighted by that. You're bored. I've been there, so I suspect this is where you've been too. You're, you're disconnected from it. Now, sometimes in that, God does sweetly, kindly meet us and show us something of himself. But the, the singing of the words themselves, the, the playing of the instruments themselves, don't themselves... <laughs> do something if we don't see. See him. So our, our need is to say, this is good. It, it is right and appropriate for you, God, and it's good for me. So show me. Show me. Make me glad in heart. Please. Open my eyes and cause me to behold wonderful things in your word or in your world. To show me your works. To show me who you are. To make my heart glad. And then what will come out of me is worship and praise. And my joy will be doubled up. Or doubled down, whichever way you say that. It'll be enhanced. It'll be grown. It'll be caused to flourish. The psalmist is saying with a glad, joyful heart, Man, this is a good thing. I'm so delighted to give you thanks. You can hear in that his own delight. But the reason it's a good thing, the reason he's delighted is that God already made him glad by showing him his works. Brothers and sisters, turn and cry out to God, show me, give me eyes to see you in your good and gracious works. Give me attention to what you have done in making the world and give me attention to what you have done in sustaining me in it and give attention to me, show me what you have done in drawing me to you and opening my eyes to my need and showing me your sweet, saving, steadfast love and gracious kindness to me, a sinner, and show me how you drew me onto you and show me how you are growing me up and making me fully human again, changing me to make me like Christ. Show me that, show me that, show me that with a bit of desperation like that. I'm, I'm saying that a certain way, right? Because it'd be great if you showed me. Meanwhile, I'm going to watch TV. 
if a person dealt with you like that, you'd say, you're not really serious about this. <laughs> right? Wouldn't you? I can't wait to go out tonight on a date with you, honey. Meanwhile, I'm going to go play golf. Call me when you're ready. Doesn't sound like eagerness. Doesn't look like you actually believe it. Said the right thing. If when we when we see something that we that we want, we, we go for it. And what what I'm trying to communicate here in the first first point about these first four verses is this is good for you. Right with regard to God too. But good for you, for your joy. For God to make you glad in heart and then to lead you on into the expression of that. It, it, it kind of creates a cyclone of, of growing joy, of growing delight in you. Praise, not as duty, but praise as life. Praise as delight. The psalmist is engaged in that and wants us engaged in it too. And, that, and the progression begins with, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. God, God's work is there. Do you see it? God, open my eyes and show it to me and make me glad by it. It'll, it'll be delight for you. It'll be life for you. So see his works. Chase him down for sight of his works. Cry out to his spirit for illumining power. It's one of the ministries of the spirit is the spirit of illumination, to shine light, to just show me his works. You see him there. But, second, it's almost as engaged in this, wants us engaged in this, but there's also another reality is that when we talk about seeing the works of God, seeing what God does in the world and in creating and sustaining all the works of God, there, there are other things that God does through his providence as well that are challenging. That leads to the second observation. We can praise him even when we see evil flourishing, if we also see evil's final perishing. We can praise him even when we see evil and evil doers, people who do evil. We get these words, evil doers and the wicked in here that sound kind of like odd words to us, but it's just People who do evil are evildoers. Just talking about people who are doing wrong. 
We can praise him even when we see evil and evildoers flourishing if we also see evil's final perishing. In verse 5, we again see mention of God's works. Then it takes a turn. Notice the parallel statements in, in the verse. How great are your works, O Lord, first line there. And it's not here something like how great is in how wonderful or how sweet or good, but rather great in the sense of how big, grand, vast. Parallel line, your thoughts, thoughts and works parallel, are very deep. Your works, your doings, your ways, your plans and purposes, your thoughts, really deep, unfathomable. Like this one in particular, verses 6 and 7. Something that the fool, the person who's not thinking in line with God, the fool or the stupid person, the fool cannot grasp, cannot understand. The one thing with the mind of Christ can, though, but it's, it's hard to understand it. That though the wicked sprout up like grass... And all evildoers flourish, that then they are doomed to destruction forever. That's hard to understand. The evildoers, the wicked, they're doing really well. They're doing really well. Strong and powerful and wealthy and healthy. You can look across history, across the world, in your own neighborhood, people doing wrong are doing well. That's hard to understand. How does evil flourish? How do evildoers abundantly prosper, win, triumph, and not get what's coming to them? How? Does, how, how? If, if God is God, how can that be? They live into old age and they die with plenty of grandchildren and, and they, they did whatever they did and maybe even were acclaimed by society or by their countries or by their cultures as great people. And they weren't. But they had nice lives. How, how can that be? It's hard to understand that. That may sap the energy right out of this, this praise, out of this worship, this, this great giving of thanks, this making me glad by your works. When I see this work and I see that's also, I mean, I believe God is sovereign, so God's over all things, and that includes that and them and all of that. How can that be? We face that here in the psalm, too. The psalmist takes us directly to that. Flourishing evildoers. And we don't get an answer to the how. How can that be? I think there are some biblical ways to think about that, but that's not here. The answer, rather, turns us, encourages us to see more of the works of God. Yes, God providentially determines that here in this place, in this time, the wicked will prosper. doesn't say why, but keep looking. Right in the middle of this difficult section, verse 8, God remains in charge on high forever and keep looking. He determines more that the flourishing grass 
will in fact get mowed down. Maybe not when we want it. Maybe not before the evil happens or the affliction strikes us. Maybe not in this life at all. But in the end, at the end. This is the destiny of the wicked, doomed to destruction forever. The passage says, evil's final perishing, evil doers' final perishing. It's assured by the Lord himself. Underlined, emphasized, verse 9, for behold your enemies, O Lord, behold your enemies. Repetition, pressing this home, behold, the enemies of God will perish, scattered in death and defeat. That's what's coming. We're meant to see that, to look at the world beset now as it is with evildoers and and flourishing, yes, now, and not understanding all of God's reasons or purposes. His works are very deep. But to see with the mind of God, not like fools that focus only on the here and now, but to see with the mind of God, with, with His eyes, that there is a pronounced end and a reckoning. That's His work too. To see that now here in in the midst of rampant evil, to see it even in the moment when evil strikes you, this is no philosophical debate. The psalmist's language becomes my enemies. They, They were the enemies of the Lord. Now in verse 11, they are my enemies, my evil assailants. This is not just theory about quote unquote evil. It's my trouble. He's in the middle of it. When we live in the middle of it, we can read the newspapers, and then when the newspapers are about us, it's different. And here he is, encouraging us to sit there with him. In the middle of this trouble, see something more. Do you hear the hoofbeats of the coming horsemen of the judgment? Faint, coming. It's, it's important to see that. It's the middle of the psalm here. To see that in the middle of trouble is how we can continue to praise and give thanks to the Lord for His works, even the ones that we don't get because we see not just the, the sweet and precious works and not only the troubling works, but the works in which we can trust justice. One of the fears we face, we look at affliction and the evil flourishing, is this fear like, they're going to get away with it. For crying out loud, they're going to get away with it. Some guy plots, I'm going to go shoot up a concert and then take my own life. And what does he do? Exactly that. He got away with it. All we can do is clean up and hold the funerals. Dang! Got away with it. He didn't. He didn't. Nobody gets away with anything. And part of, 
the center part of this, part of what, what reinforces and what supports our, this call on us, this, this urging of us to be glad in heart and to sing praises, part of it is to see all the way to the end and to see that justice is done. Even to my evil assailants. See the whole work of God, Christian. We've got to handle this material very carefully because the one place we don't want to go is, is gloating. On the other hand, we've got to remember this and see it and, and see what it is so that we don't go into despair. I feel like we get away with things. No one does. We know this. I'm not saying anything that a Christian doesn't already know. May God open your eyes and press this into, not just to give you sight of his sweet saving work, of his sweet sustaining work of you, but to also give you sight of the throne of judgment on which everything is made right. Everything is made right. To see that, it doesn't, it doesn't eliminate the pain now, but it does give us some feeling of, I, I can let go of that and entrust it to you. I can praise you even in the midst of what I don't understand because that I do. And that's there to make it all right. To believe this, to have it pressed into us, to change our minds, to change our perspective, to draw us out to see a longer and larger horizon, to see the future. That's the work of the Spirit also, to show us that work of God, and to show us God in that work too, to show us the just one, the righteous one, to call us to trust Him for being faithful in that too. And lastly, also to see his final work for us who believe. Third observation. The work of God in Christ assures us that we will flourish with him forever. See this. See this. Work of God in Christ assures us that we will flourish with Him forever. Verses 10 and 11 are, are beginning to pivot in the psalm from considering the outcome for the wicked to considering the outcome for the righteous. Evildoers will be scattered, perish, but you have exalted my horn. You have poured on me fresh oil. The first image there, it's, these are... are Fighting, they're war images. The first image there is of a, of a shattered army, scattered. And conversely, a horn is about strength and power. The fresh oil, a sign of, of blessing and favor. And at the moment, right now, who seems favored? The flourishing wicked seem favored. But with spiritual eyes, the psalmist sees down into the future and sees the shoe on the other foot. Evildoers scattered in doom and, and, now this is where the third point moves to, he sees himself made strong and favored. 
Verse 12, he sees himself in all the righteous. He sees the righteous, strong, and favored. Not in the moment, not, not right now, but in the future. Not yet, but truly so. He sees it certain. This is not an exhortation to be righteous or to not be wicked. Remember, the Psalms are written, they, they are written to be on the lips of believers. So obviously you can read this and you can say, I, I want to be on one side, not the other, so I, I should follow this way. But it's not, it's not calling us to be righteous. It's an assuring promise to the righteous. What's going to happen to the righteous and the wicked respectively? Meant as an encouragement to help us be glad in heart, to show us this work too. So may the Lord by His Spirit open your eyes to this work and cause this what you know, cause it to run into you and kind of like, like water fill up, like a sponge absorbing water, cause it to just kind of run into you and just expand, fill you. Imagine this, see it. His hand takes you and plants you. That's what, what he does. He takes his hand, takes and plants you and nourishes you and causes you to flourish. Now, different, different context, same word here, but different, different picture, isn't it? Cause you to flourish, not like grass, but like a tree, like, like two trees, in fact, two different kinds of trees, a great palm tree and like the cedar of Lebanon. The palm trees mentioned here, they, they were renowned... As I've read, they're not like, like little island palm trees. Great, tall palm trees that were renowned for continuing to bear fruit even through bad weather. So you can trust them to bear fruit even in bad weather for a long time. You see the connection down to they'll bear fruit in old age. It's, it's carried off of the idea of what this palm tree was. And the cedar, that's probably a little more familiar to us, the cedar of Lebanon. It was the closest thing to living indestructible that they had. Tall, mighty, long-lived, alive, indestructible. Great, old, thriving, vibrant, fruitful, indestructible trees. We might think of the the redwoods of California. I've never seen the redwoods of California. I've seen the redwoods of Oregon, and I imagine they're the same. Living out here, a lot of us have been there, but I had not until a few years back. I went and stood by one of these things, and I thought, oh my goodness, this is a huge tree. I've seen big trees. Not like that. Gigantic. Vast, majestic, beautiful. You. Vast, majestic, beautiful, indestructible, alive, fruitful. You. 
the righteous. He will cause you to flourish like that. And the others flourish like grass, which flourish and captures your sight. You can see them both, which one's kind of front and center. They're, they're both there, you see them both. Which one captures your sight? You, Christian, you will flourish like a tree. The hand of the Lord will plant you and cause you to flourish. Use the word again. Cause you to flourish in his courts, in the, the very heart, the very center of his sanctuary, his courts, home for him, right where he is. That's where you're planted, fruitful, alive, vibrant, full of sap. Think of this imagery here. Another one of our fears... We look at the evil around us, we say, they're going to get away with it. But another one of the fears is that, well, even if they don't get away with it, that doesn't restore my life. We, we fear, when, when we're looking at, at evil assailants, we, we look at wickedness done to us or done to our loved ones, and triumphing of it, even if it's for just a time. There's a sense there of personal loss. In a way, assailants and foes, evil, it takes away our lives. It takes away our time. It takes away our resources, our comfort, our health, our mental peace and wholeness. We suffer at the hands of someone else and we are broken by that and we sense a loss and it leads us to say or, or to fear ever having to get to the place where we say, Sure, okay, great, he got what he deserved, but that doesn't bring back my loved one. Nothing can give me back my innocence, my health, my, my peace of mind. I'm, I'm lost, I'm damaged, I'm broken by this, irretrievably so, and, and justice doesn't fix it. There's nothing in the world that can change that. Look, look at how, I'm coming back around to the passage, but look at how sweet this is from God for us. Is there evil? Absolutely. Does evil assail? Absolutely. Does it hit and afflict and steal life from us? Absolutely. And what's the world to do about that? Nothing. Time doesn't heal wounds. It doesn't. We just learn to walk with a limp. We learn to walk broken. We, we kind of patch it together, put some tape on it, and move on because that's the best we can do. That's the best we can do in the world. And that's awful. But here's more of the good work of God. God's saving work through the scriptures always has the re prefix attached to it. Renew, redeem, restore. Because he's fixing. He causes us to flourish here. One picture that we have here, full of sap 
and green, still bearing fruit in the old age. And that old age, if you catch the contrast here, as mentioned when James read the passage, we're not just talking about like into your 80s. The contrast here is eternity. The road that forks for the wicked and the righteous is on into eternity. We're talking about life in the kingdom that begins now and goes on forever. And into that forever, now and on into forever, the image of full of sap and green, fruitful. Christians living dependent on Christ can look at the evil affliction that that he or she suffers and can know something sweet. I have life, life to the full, life abundant. The images of, of alive and living and thriving and flourishing, renewed, redeemed. He fills me up, makes me new, causes me to grow, not just patched together. This is new growth. We will lose, we will certainly lose, but we actually are told in the Scriptures, this is a sweet thing, that our losing is actually meant by God to prosper. They mean it for evil, He means it for good. That's in the Scripture. Think of 2 Corinthians 4. All of our light and momentary afflictions are achieving, depending on your translation, achieving, attaining, working towards, preparing. That's, that's this, making happen an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs it all. So I lose, crazy as this sounds, to my profit. I lose and, and is, am grown up and renewed. I don't come out of the short end of that diminished. I come out of that on the long end, enhanced. I'm trying to say the same thing in a dozen different ways here. God has given us a promise here about a, a work of His that is over, above, triumphing over every affliction and every bit of suffering, that there is a life to come that you righteous one, are made by him as a great tree and planted in his very presence on into forever, alive, fruitful, growing, strong, and beautiful. See that work of God. Be glad and in heart by it and rejoice. It's hard to see it sometimes, I know. But you've got to see it. That's the Spirit's work in us to cause us to see that and to, to believe it and to rejoice in it. This is for you. The righteous flourish in this way. This is for you. Secure and certain because of the work of God done in Christ. This comes around to the work of God done in Christ because if we're working through this, we always should work through the Psalms and think about have in the back of our minds, Christ, Jesus. Jesus. What a sweet thing to be one of the righteous, the tree planted. What an awful thing to be one of the wicked, judged. Well, who's who? 
You know anything about the context of the Old Testament? The righteous are those who follow God in faith in the right sacrifice. Who walk obediently following God, trusting in the sacrifice to cover sin. Was there a sacrifice? Ah, there is, yeah. Praise the Lord, there is. Praise the Lord, there is. Christ, who more than any of us ever knew evil assailants, knew suffering at their hand as they triumphed over him, and where sometimes we waver and turn away and cry out frustrated, why? He did cry out to God, but in dependent, perfect faith, ever praising him, declaring that the Lord is upright and righteous, even as the Father let evil have its way with his beloved Son. Jesus held on to the Lord as his rock. And so Jesus' horn was exalted, and he was planted like a great tree in the very presence of God, seated at the right hand, in fact. It happened to Jesus. And you who are in Jesus by faith, it's yours too. Because of Jesus. Righteous, you are righteous because of Jesus' faithful praising and thanksgiving. You are righteous because of Jesus' steadfast dependence on God. That righteousness that's his, it's yours by faith. That's how you can stand in his presence, in his very courts. Stand mighty and fruitful in the presence of the one who is upright and in whom there is no unrighteousness. This is the work of the Lord for you in Christ. See it. And, and when, when clouds come and kind of blow in and block the view with, with earnestness and with some, some sense of, of desperation even, ask God to clear the view. Give me eyes to see. Gladden my heart by your works that I may sing for joy and give thanks always to you in everything. That's God's will for you, and that's good. And it's abundantly made possible and real because the works of the Lord, because the Lord is the God of faithfulness and steadfast love for you, His people. Give thanks to the Lord and sing praises to his name. Declare that the Lord is upright. This is where it ends then. Declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. This is your God. Good for you. Good to you. Praise him and give him thanks. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for what you have done and for what you will do. Some of what you are about in this world is beyond us. We have no idea. Even when we see it, we don't get it. But some of what you're doing in this world is extremely clear and amazing. That you sent your Son to save us, to make us your own, to give us entrance into your courts, to give us a seat at your table, to give us a standing, a citizenship in your kingdom, and that forever. You have made us all into indestructible, living citizens of heaven. Glory to you. We give you thanks and we praise you. And Lord, when we struggle, will you make our hearts glad with these truths and show us all of your works? We look to you and we say, this, this is what... This is what makes for joy in our lives. We want to live in that, but we need your, need your power to show it. So, so show it to us. Show us your work. Show us yourself. Gladden our hearts and lead us on after you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.